picture yourself in an evening after hard work, very relaxed in your comfy chair, nuzzled up. Maybe you have a favorite blanket or a cup of tea on your side table, and you're knee-deep in a riveting book, just enthralled, and all of a sudden you hear a thump and a rattle of cans falling over. And in those moments, I know all of you have had one or two of those experiences. Sometimes it's just a cat, but nonetheless, your adrenaline is surging and you have an acute sharpness of mind. So too, I think in this particular text, we need to only take a few verses today to be instructed by Peter in his warning to be ready for a defense of our own souls against sin which would assail us. I'm <clears throat> thinking even in these moments of, of 1 Peter in chapter 1, or maybe it's chapter 2, where he says to be prepared or to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. We too struggle with sin and therefore Though this rebuke, I take it to be against somebody who is not truly regenerate. Nonetheless, we have similar struggles. And so if you weren't here last week or you need a little bit of a recap, let us just look at verse 21 for, or 20 for a second. <clears throat> Peter says to Simon the magician who had been baptized and confessed Christ and yet is apparently caught up in this magical worldview still. He gives a strong rebuke, even even saying that the way that he is going, if he is not to turn, leads to destruction, which is what will happen to his money. And he is so sharp because of the serious nature of the transgression. That is, if he were to continue and not forsaken uh, of this particular path, he will be led to destruction. Now, In verse 21 is where we'll focus in the first portion of the sermon here. He's going to drill down on two major points and an implication. Two, two major points and an implication. You'll see in 21 there's, there's two propositions. You have neither part nor inheritance or lot in this matter. That's the first part. For your heart is not right or upright before God. Let's take that second part first. Your heart is not right before God. This is the core of the problem. Here's the reason the rebuke is coming. We, we know that in the Bible, the heart is not that pumping thing in your chest. Rather, the heart in the Bible is rather the sort of roots or the core of who you are as a person. In this sense, we could say that the heart is is like the deepest and most foundational identifier of who you are. It, It is your essence, as it were. And in fact, everything of who we are, since it's contained in a heart, in the heart, as as it were, then everything we do, whether it be in our our mind, that is our intellect or our desires, or our will, or our body, all of these things flow from the heart. So you'll hear people say, um, 
when they have done something sinful, I don't know what got into me. <laughs> As though it's like not a part of who you are. The, the reason you did such and so a thing that you may have never thought you were capable of is because that was hidden in your heart. It's essentially who you are all along. It's part of your corrupt nature. And so this is why before regeneration, it is absolutely folly and only to our doom that we would trust in our heart. We need a higher and more sure trust that is Christ. Now, Peter is an apostle, and I don't take this, and I think commentators uh, who agree with me are right, of course. Those, I don't take this as a supernatural revelation given of the Spirit. We know that God only knows infallibly the hearts of men. This is not one of those times, though Peter is a good Christian. He, he understands the, the nature of what's going on. He has learned to discern who people are by what they say. Our heart is revealed through the tongue, through the actions. It has well been said in the past that, you know, I, I don't really care what, uh, I, I'm not going to assess what you believe by what you say, but rather what you do. We can really understand what people fundamentally believe by what they do and what they say. And here in this case, I think Proverbs 25 is the, what is going on. The purpose of a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Simon himself drew it out by what he said. Further, we know that Jesus says in Matthew 12, 34 and 35, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure, that is of his heart, brings forth good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure of the heart brings forth evil. Simon had revealed his crooked ways and the darkness that he was shrouded in by what he said, give me this power, just as he had been seeking in his days as a magician. But Peter, here in this section, illuminates a foundational gospel issue, that being right with God is to be understood in relation to gift that cannot be bought. Now, I want to focus on particular words. He's not right before God because he doesn't understand that being right before God is a matter of gift. And secondly, there's a, let me just point your attention for, we covered this, for your heart is not right before God. Whenever we see that word for, sometimes it's helpful if we're starting backwards. This is the foundational reason that's given. The statement that comes before uh, can be turned into an implication. So here's how we do that. You say, since your heart is not right before God, therefore you have neither part nor portion or or inheritance in this matter. That is the matter of salvation. You have no part or no inheritance because, if it's the reason, you want to be able to say both. So it's very simply said there's there's two parts. His, His heart is not right before God. And therefore, it will lead to destruction. That's, that's one way to say it. Or if you just invert it, well, then what does he lack then? If his heart is not in the right place, he, he not only will be led to destruction, but he will also lack the inheritance of the saints. 
the inheritance of salvation. Peter is informing him that in this path, there's no lasting possession. There's no reward at the end of the life that you're living. And so in this matter, we find some difficulty in ourselves. Most of you, I assume, have the same experience as me, that gospel preaching, which is essentially what Peter is doing in his exhortation. The man had already been baptized. He knows the gospel clear enough to communicate it. And now he's being warned in light of the gospel. And I assume that when you maybe have heard the gospel in the past, you heard that uh, if you trust in Christ Jesus, when you die, you'll go to heaven. This is true. However, if it's the only way that we understand salvation, then we will by and large have missed the most frequent ways that the Bible talks about salvation. It's not just going away to there. It's actually inheriting something here. Inheritance. This is how salvation is described. And I just want to briefly show you through a parallel usage of the word here of of inheritance or or portion. Lot, Lot is sometimes how it's translated. If you would turn to Ephesians chapter 1, I want to walk you through just a couple occurrences and then to chapter 5. And I want you to just have Paul's way of describing the same reality of salvation in a different context. It'll help you realize the language of salvation in the Bible from new to old. So Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm going to first read in verse 11, and then we'll read through verse 14. So in him, that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. This is the parallel use of the word. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So we have access, that is through Christ, to um, an inheritance in the same way that we would think of uh, through being adopted. That was what was covered in verse 7. You're adopted into a family, and therefore you will and have already gained access to the family's inheritance. That is the father's inheritance through his son for his children. That's the idea. Now he further unpacks this in verse 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. You see, this is salvation language here. And believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the, literally the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So salvation is like um, here where we see the Holy Spirit coming, a sign that they've been made members of the family. The language of salvation is because that is the case, because they have been made um, a part of the family through the Spirit. That is, they have the Spirit of the Son in them. Therefore, they are sons and daughters of, of God. Therefore, now... Not only do they have access into the family's inheritance now, there is a a future blessing that's set aside for them. In fact, it can't be removed. They have the down payment of that in the Holy Spirit. Well, what is this? You could look in verse 18 
it clarifies that the inheritance is for all the saints. And lastly, I think most importantly, I wanted to show you that as context. But if you go to chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, and I'll read from verse 5, just just one verse. There's a, a fuller expression of what this inheritance is. Ephesians 5, 5. For you may be sure, this is the negative sense, of course, which directly applies to Simon. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. No inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. There's a sense in which that's present. That's a present reality. And there's a sense in which that is a future reality. Here, what is being said, because it's being drawn to its ultimate ends, if you continue in this way, it will lead to destruction. That is, you won't have the inheritance of the kingdom of God. This is what is being got at. Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians 1 through 3. We should understand salvation in earthy terms, a possession that we will one day enter into. This is why, and famously, you don't even have to turn here, that Jesus, in speaking of the salvation of his people in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, quotes directly Psalm 37, saying, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit. Does anybody know? They shall inherit heaven. Well, yeah, that's, that's true. But the Bible speaks more commonly of those who are righteous inheriting the earth. That is, God in salvation restores all of the earth to God. We can think of <clears throat> salvation compared to inheritance because it's a rest salvation in its completeness, is a restoration of all the created order as it ought to be. It is the reestablishment of man's dominion over the earth in totality. It is, in a sense, the union of heaven and earth with Christ being the bridge. The only reason, uh, let, let me just give you one other verse, super, super famous First Peter chapter 3, I love this way of, of speaking about <clears throat> salvation. Let me find it here real quick. First Peter chapter 3, this is verse 18, if you just want to note it. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. <laughs> that is the goal of the gospel that we might be restored to God, which includes also everything else that's been broken. Namely, the whole earth, which has come under a curse and everything in it. So I encourage you this week for yourselves, go to Psalm 37 and go read its earthy promises, which are of salvation. So you can read stuff like the righteous inherit the earth and dwell upon it forever. That is the promise of salvation for saints. Furthermore, you might say on the negative side, Simon is like the wicked in Psalm 37, who is going to be cut off 
from the land such that he cannot be found. But yours is the earth forever. This is the first part of our scripture. The warning, which is, your heart is not right before God, so you have no inheritance in the earth. You will be cut off from it, and that will be destruction for you. Now, what must someone do? You know, we, a, a a rebuke, that is one that is done in love, always has a restorative goal. It has a goal for salvation. It illuminates the terrible in order to show you the wonderful. That is, he exhorts him now to repentance and to confession of sin. Verse 22, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Now we could spend a long time on this and what I want to draw out is two things, repentance and confession. And in this phrase that's given, the intent of your heart. Because even in, in people that I won't name now, I think there's some, some issues in our day regarding the intention of the heart specifically. So Peter, in exhorting to repentance... Let me just say, repentance, what is this? He, he directs it at the heart, which is super instructive for us. But repentance, in its fundamental understanding, is, is, a, is a turning of one, one way in one direction to another direction. In the Old Testament, uh, you would see return or turn. Um, you'll hear a, a fire and brimstone preacher say, turn or burn. <laughs> this is the idea. Turn, make a, a directional change. And Peter directs this specifically at calling him away from the desires of his heart. They have been revealed, but they are in one direction. He says, from the core of you, make an about face and go in the other direction. It helps us to know that repentance is not simply um, a, a change of action. Though this is true, it is a change from the inside. It must be affected by the Spirit of God, but it is one that is in the root of our person. It's in the heart so that everything else is included. It is also including our affections, our desires, our intentions. It includes our intellect. In our will, repentance in its fullness <clears throat> will never be had in this, this life by us. We will always have to be in different senses repenting and changing the desires that we have or asking the Lord to change them or changing the way we think about the world, getting rid of ideologies, rooting them out and importing biblical categories into our minds. We're going to have to choose regularly to do other things that are hard for us that we haven't done and live those out in our deeds. Repentance is from the center all the way out to the fingertips. 
and it's the desire of the heart. The Bible here is exceedingly clear. I want to quote one section for you in Galatians chapter 5, 16 and 17. There are only two kinds of desires, and they are both born in the heart, that is, in the believer. Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Now, now the flesh is not the skin (laughs) or the body. It's really your corrupt human nature, okay? Now, he's going to explain. He says, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these things are in opposition to one another. So in us, are in our hearts, as those who have been born again by God, have two warring parties, as it were, two, um, two powers that are, are, are fighting or in opposition. And one is our corrupt nature, and the other is the Spirit of God in us, who is not willing for us, in this sense. We, we are participants with God, but He is producing new desires, and he's freed our will to to do what we could not previously. Also, to substantiate this maybe a little bit further, James chapter 1 has a really helpful discussion about sin being brought forth unto death. James 1 says that God tempts no one to sin, and he cannot even himself be tempted This is true even of the Son, Jesus Christ. He cannot be tempted to sin. He doesn't desire it. There's no no internal compulsion like we have who have a fallen nature, whereby we have an internal sense of being tempted from the inside, not produced by God or by the Spirit. The Spirit of God in the Christian produces only good, Only pure and upright desires, though, of course, we don't fully submit to these all the time or live according to these. All the things that come from our fallen human nature do not morph magically into good or produce good. We need um, a, a regeneration. We need to be born again for any of these things to exist. So let me just. I want to read a section from the 1689, a brief little little paragraph. And uh, unfortunately, the one that we've handed out as elders to you is a modern update, which is great. But sometimes modern English muddies up clear ideas of older language. <laughs> so sometimes the old guys, the dead guys, had better ways of speaking about things, which were helped by. And so... I'm going to read from Peter Masters' uh, English Notes Edition. So there's three brackets, and I'm just going to show you with my hands. So he'll use like the word mortification, which is being put to death. Okay, so that'll be an example because I want you to hear how we as believers interact with sin and and deal with this reality that is being talked about in our text. So it says in chapter 6, paragraph 5 of the 1689, During this life, the corruption of nature remains in those who are regenerated, born again. 
And although it is pardoned and mortified, it's being put to death through Christ, yet this corrupt nature, and here's the language, and all its motions, specifically its initiatives, drives, temptations, are truly and properly sin. Let me say that again. Our corrupt nature and all that is our heart and all its motions, its initiatives, drives, temptations are truly and properly sin. This is very significant for us because this means that some desires in and of themselves, just because they're present in you, need to be confessed. As sin, culpable sin, whether or not you engaged in with your will, it doesn't matter. And, and if you have certain desires, they can be inherently good. <clears throat> Eating is good. Let me give you one example of something that's inherently sinful, even the thought of it. This is an inner temptation born from you that you're culpable for. So if you have an inner temptation to harm your own body, like cutting off a perfectly good finger, this is an evil inclination. This inner temptation needs to be confessed as sin. It is wrong even because it pops up in your life. However, a desire to cut is not the problem. Because it can be aimed at the right object. A desire to cut your hedges because you like them neat and tidy. Well, that's good. A desire to cut your shaggy hair is good too. However, when it's aimed, our fallen nature is aiming a cutting at ourselves. You want to turn the scissors on yourself and draw blood. Must, even though, <clears throat> if it's immediately resisted, we have to confess our sin of being tugged, being pulled in this direction in and of itself is sinful and must be confessed. Peter says to Simon, repent of the evil desire and intention of your heart. And secondly, also ask the Lord for forgiveness. <clears throat> By the way, he doesn't do this. He says, well, you, you do it for me. <clears throat> But let us be exhorted to, to two things and then, and then find some consolation in Christ. So two things. Uh, I want to exhort you to confession. Con confession. Ask the Lord for forgiveness. This is the first thing I want to say. Church, we must do, do both things. We must confess our sins and then seek repentance. <clears throat> We're obligated by God to confess every single desire which entices us, every instance of fleshly lust. All of these things which are even momentarily entertained or meditated upon, we must go to Christ for pardon. And we must, in these things, know that all of our sins are imputed to Christ. They have been taken and borne by Him. We are forgiven yet need as humans to experience the forgiveness of our sin and the blessing of forgiveness meted out day by day. 
Forgiveness, in a sense, is, is like when you win the lottery and it's not given to you in a lump sum, but it's meted out over the course of time. You have been forgiven of all your sin, but you are still, as a human, when you confess sin, are greeted by the present experience of God's forgiveness, greeted by his pleasure in you, greeted by his comfort in saying, yes, you are mine, greeted by all that is good, <clears throat> that has already been purchased as a benefit of Christ's cross. Secondly, your duty is not only to confess all of your sins, even the ones that come up in your mind that you immediately resist, we must also repent from them in our, in our actions. I think you should make this distinction <clears throat> when you talk to one another. I think it'll be helpful for you to distinguish between Asking for forgiveness on the one hand and, and repenting in your deeds, seeking after a new obedience. <clears throat> we must, by the Spirit, turn and seek after new thoughts, new desires. And we must ask Christ to help us here. We must throw down every idol. We must smoke out every rebel lust in the camp of our heart. We must wield the sword of the Spirit against enemies within and those without. We must endeavor and seek after fresh obedience and to live in the path of wisdom and life and to not settle for anything less. I'm just going to struggle with this forever. Oh, I might as well just do it again. Right? So hard. Now, I realize this is where consolation. By the way, if you hear me say some of these words, I, I've been recently in, uh, led to a, a document written by the Westminster Divines uh, Public Directory of Worship. Uh, they, are, they had brought forth six ways that the Puritans applied their sermons. And so I'm going to start using those terms so that you know whenever there's application. Because sometimes you guys don't know. <laughs> sometimes you think it's all just new information and not information application. So I'm going to try to do that for your sake and then for our sake as a whole. But this one um, is a sort of, although I've done this every, pretty much every sermon I've ever preached, uh, is a section where I've, I've never thought about it this way. And that is application for consolation. It's a consolation application where we find our rest in Christ. And <clears throat> so I want to draw your attention. As we Think about our duties. We must confess every sinful desire, even if we immediately resisted. Men, you uh, saw a, a woman who is not your wife and you lusted. Though you immediately turn from that, I can't look over there, I have to walk away. Or, or ladies, whatever the sin is, uh, anger or insubmission towards your husband or whatever you might struggle with. You immediately resisted, you changed course, yet that desire itself, you have to confess those. Those are sinful in and of themselves. <clears throat> That's a lot of confession. <laughs> That's a lot of repentance in our lives. It's serious. Our sin is very deep. And I realize in a call to duty in this way, we can often feel a weakness in our own mind and in our own will. We despair when we assess ourselves, knowing that we have taken beatdowns in the past and 
I am weak and succumb to my passions. A time I, I'm led astray by my affections and led into wrong paths. <clears throat> we are at times feel like we're driven hither and thither. And we are mastered by our sins. Who can free me from the bondage? <clears throat> our ignorance, amen, son. Our ignorance in the past, we think, has prevailed and we've been lost at times. Confused, vexed, succumbing to helplessness and victimhood, falling into a puddle on the ground. But this is the wrong place to look for courage. This is the wrong place to look for encouragement. Our perseverance in the faith does not ultimately depend upon the freedom of our own will, though yes, it has been freed by Christ. The power of our obedience and sanctification rests in the unchangeableness of the decree of God of election, which flows from his full and free and immutable love, which he has bestowed upon us in Christ. It is based upon the efficacy and the merit of the intercession of Christ Jesus and our union with him. We abide with Christ because his blood has secured us by his covenant, which can never be cast asunder. Our good shepherd defends us against vicious predators with the rod in the right hand, and he pulls us back into the way of life everlasting with the crook in his left hand. The spirit dwelling in us has come because of sheer grace and no cooperation on your part. Praise the Lord. You are not more spiritual than the next guy. You did not help Jesus save you. It was mercy alone. He has caused faith by the Spirit to well up in you, and you have believed and been bonded to Christ by the Spirit. That is because Christ dies for an elect people and affects their redemption, which is in Him alone. He enlivens you weekly, daily, Hourly and strengthens you by his saving graces. Even now, remember what is true about you in, in the darkest places that you ever live. Sanctification, even now at this second, as wonderful as this is, is extending in the earshot of my words further and deeper throughout your whole person, affecting your affections, that is your desires, emotions, your intellect, your will, and your desire to do different things with your body. In the midst of irreconcilable and continual, continual war between the flesh and the spirit, corruption is being supplanted and God himself is continually supplying grace to your every lacking member so that the regenerate part of you, that is your nature, which has been renewed in Christ, is overcoming and will overcome 
all of your old man. Little by little, we are being conformed to the image of Christ so that one day every elect saint will be completed in holiness and will reach the glory of the sons of God in a resurrection of our own. Beloved, our hope for ongoing repentance and increasing confidence leading to faithful prayer and a lively pursuit of righteousness is found, is, is accessed, gained, enjoyed only through the founder and perfecter of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I call you, look to him and all of his promises and his strength and perseverance will follow in every needful moment, every weak and trembling time where you need a power that is beyond yourself. It is accessed. It is yours in Christ Jesus. Trust in him. Let us pray.